The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we're gathered here again on Easter morning to consider something remarkable. And I pray, Lord, would you cause us to look at it and see in it wonder. We just sang one of the lines of that last song, Death is dead and Christ is risen. That is remarkable. Help us to wonder, please. And help us to rest. To rest in the fact that you have done this and it's real and it means everything. It has changed us. It has secured the future for us. It is good. It is gracious. Thank you. Cause us to wonder, please, this morning. Tell us the story here and tell it in a way that grips us and moves us. Would you be honored and would your church be built? And with the world all around us come to hear of this and know it, wonder at it and rest in it also. Thank you for being so trustworthy, Lord. We put this in front of you and ask you to move. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The last 12 months have been full of newsworthy events, big stuff. And no matter what you think about it, whether you find yourself just generally concerned or perhaps supportive or in opposition of this or that, or maybe even just uncertain or suspicious, wherever you are, all of these events undeniably have had massive impact on us, on all of us. Well, this morning we're going to consider some more big news News that makes this last year's coronavirus and economic upheaval and racial discord and contentious elections and civil unrest look like the small potatoes that it really is. This is big. Jesus rose from the dead. And I say that, and it is easy. I think probably most of us say like, well, yeah, okay, no. A dead guy came back to life. This dead guy came back to this kind of life. That is big news. And it makes everything else seem like it is really small. And that kind of big news, whether you're kind of just generally in opposition to it or, or mostly un, uncertain, suspicious perhaps, wh wherever it is that you are on the spectrum, it has an impact on all of us. And I think probably if you were to, to just kind of cast the world into a couple different categories, there probably are three groups of people, maybe even represented here today, some folks who are highly suspicious and, and kind of hold it at bay and wonder. And, and then some other folks, probably most people, who kind of are familiar with this and kind of don't think about it real hard. Yeah, Easter, sure, the resurrection of Jesus. And maybe once, once or twice a year, perhaps an Easter morning, you, you kind of think about it, but it's not really important. 
And then there's a third group, perhaps a lot of us here this morning. Yes, we are aware of it, and yes, we are thankful for it, and yes, we are in agreement, but perhaps we could stand to be reminded and and re-encouraged and have reinforced in us something of what this is about, what happened and what it means for us, because this is the biggest news of all. So wherever you are in one of those three groups here, I, I, I think, I hope that what will appear this morning from this passage here at the end of the Gospel of Matthew is, is a news report that has impact on all of us. It's not just a Christian story. This isn't just a Christian holiday. This is for the world. And it's important. It has impact on all of us. So may, may God speak this morning through his word and teach us something and build us up encourage, maybe point you back towards him or reveal himself to you for the first time. We're going to pick up the report just after Jesus has been buried, fully and completely dead, not just passed out or swooned or unconscious, fully and completely dead, as numerous eyewitnesses who saw him, who handled his body, report including the execution squad, whose job it was to make sure they did their job. He's dead. And his body was wrapped in a burial shroud, as was the custom, and he was placed in a tomb owned by a rich follower, a hole cut in, the, in a rock face, with a, a door, as was the custom, a, a door of stone that kind of rolled down a slight incline to, to block the entrance. That's where he is when we begin reading in verse 62 from Matthew chapter 27. I'm going to read from there all the way to the end. It's a long passage. I'm going to read rather quickly, so, so follow along. But it, it, even if you don't have a Bible in front of you, it's, it's a story, so I think you can, you can probably keep up with it. I'm beginning in verse 62 of chapter 27. Next day, that is, after the day of preparation... The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, 
and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The end of the Gospel of Matthew. Make two points from this lengthy passage. Here's the first, which is really the main point. Jesus was raised bodily from the dead to the place of universal total authority. Jesus was raised bodily from the dead to the place of universal total authority. This is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen several times, as in Matthew 26, verse 32, for instance. He's on the Mount of Olives right before he's arrested, and he tells his followers there that he's going to be killed, which they find hard to believe. He's going to be killed, and they're all going to be scattered. But then he says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He said that sort of thing often. And, and of course, as we see here, these claims were known to his enemies, the chief priests and Pharisees, who did not for one second believe that it could happen, but they were worried that other people might fake it. So they asked Pilate, who's the Roman governor, for a detachment of armed guards and a Roman seal to be placed in the tomb. And that's what happened. Verse 65, they made it as secure as they could, as they humanly could. Now, from this point on, each of the four different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I'll, I'll tell this story, what happened next, from different points of view, each of them emphasizing different sets of details, all of them in their own context. We have four different reports, which is actually quite helpful. They cross-verify one another. But Matthew, the one before us today, he focuses his story only on two people, both of them women, which is noteworthy. Because in that culture, in, in that day, in that place, the testimony of women was not deemed reliable. Kind of like how we would today regard the testimony of young children as not reliable. It's not that young children cannot tell the truth, but we all know that young children sometimes don't really exactly know everything that's going on in a certain context. They don't really understand so well. That's how they used to think of women. So the testimony of a woman is unreliable, but here's the Bible. Here's Matthew turning that on its head, mentioning only women. There the witnesses put forth, though we know that there were men present also. He, he uses women. Nobody making up a lie. Catch this. 
This is, this is, this is part of the story here. Nobody making up a lie goes out of his way to mention unreliable witnesses and build it all on them. This, this rings true, even around the periphery. Mary and Mary Magdalene go to the tomb, and what do they find? Verse 2, there had been an earthquake because of a supernatural event. An angel came down from heaven and opened up the stone, rolled back the stone, opened up the tomb, and sat down to wait, which scared the guards almost literally to death. They pass out, and when they came to with the angel still there, they run off in terror. They go back and they tell the chief priests. We read about that later. But when the women get there, the angel engages with them. Do not be afraid. Fear is a common element in this passage. The, the women are repeatedly afraid, which again is another, another element of the, the scent of truth. They don't become heroines. They're afraid all the way through. Even when they leave joyful, they're still afraid. They're told by Jesus and by the angel, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, because they're real people encountering something that does not happen. A supernatural earthquake, we, we know those can be unsettling. A, a blazing white, white as lightning angel who talks to them and who then tells them what cannot possibly be true. Not who tells them what they were hoping to hear. Who tells them what cannot possibly be true. They're people. They know people don't come back from the grave. They've gone to anoint his body. You seek Jesus who's been crucified and he was dead here. I know. Well, verse 6, he's not here. Where is he then? What do you think? This question needs to be answered. This is, a, this is a huge question. It needs to be looked at, the evidence considered, and then an answer settled on. It is probably common for a majority of people to kind of hear this and it kind of come to you, wash over you, and then run away. He is not here. Where is he? What happened? Well, the Jewish leaders decide to offer up the option they were worried about all along. His disciples stole the body. And they bribed the guards to say that, and they bribed the governor to look the other way. But that's not what happened. The facts don't support that. The psychology of the situation doesn't support that. Psychologically, think about this. The disciples of Jesus were crushed, crushed by his death. They have no mental framework for a dead Messiah, no more than anybody else does. They have no place in their minds for a leader who's going to come deliver them and gets killed by the people he's supposed to deliver them from. That puts an end to all the hope. They are in deep despair and then on top of that, terrified because who's going to be next? Us, his followers. Psychologically, they, they, are, they are despairing and fearful and faking a resurrection isn't going to help that. It's not going to restore any hope or any fear. They wouldn't know better. They couldn't fool themselves. The disciples did not steal the body. 
nor did any third party like grave robbers. We know, we know from elsewhere that the only valuables in the tomb were the, the linen clothes in which the body was wrapped and the spices with it, and all that was left there, wrapped up, restored, left, left alone. What kind of a grave robber comes in, unwraps the body, leaves the valuables, rewrapping them, refolding them up, and walks away carrying a dead, naked body? Nobody. And the Romans and the Jews, the Jewish leaders, they didn't take him. They want him to stay right where he is. The, the facts point us towards a hard-to-believe conclusion. Nobody stole the body. So where is he? The angel tells us, he has risen like he said he has risen from the dead. says it twice. And then the testimony of Jesus, who himself appears in the flesh. No mirage. He, he's not a, a figment of their imagination. He's not a ghost. He's not a spirit being. He's bodily present. They wrap their arms around him and feel him. And later people put their hands on his body. They ate with him. They hugged him. They smelled him. He's bodily present. He was bodily dead, and he's bodily alive again. Just like he said he would be, though no one understood it and no one expected it. That is the fact of the resurrection. And on that fact, Christianity takes its stand. And that is a unique foundation we stand upon. A historical objective fact, different than every other religion and every other religious philosophy in all of the world, all of them, except biblical Christianity, are at their foundation subjective. This one alone is objective and stands on a concrete fact. All of the other religious philosophies of the world, except biblical Christianity, deliver teachings that they say have come from a higher authority or a higher power. And you hear them and you make a judgment call, yes or no. Of course, biblical Christianity has teachings that it says come from a higher power, but that's not the foundation. The foundation is here. Jesus rose from the dead. That's the central message proclaimed by once terrified and heartbroken, but now radically emboldened apostles as they preach this and proclaim it far and wide in the years that followed. This is at the core of it, such that Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15 that if the resurrection did not happen, Christianity is, is over. Christianity is false. It stands or falls on this one truth. Did he or did he not rise? If he rose, Christianity is true. If he didn't, Christianity is false. But if he rose, every other religion in all the earth is false. If he rose, every other religion in all the earth is false. Because biblical Christianity is true and refutes them all. Biblical Christianity alone is based on this firm, objective fact. And therefore, it is totally different. The apostles preached in Jerusalem to the very same people that we read about right here, who posted the guard, who mounted the seal on the stone, and then who paid off the officials to refute this. They preached to those very ones, this Jesus that you killed is alive again. 
And hundreds of people have seen him alive again, and you know it. They said that to their faces in the city where it happened, right after it happened. We have to see this. We cannot let this come to us and wash over. So you, you, hear, you feel the tension of that. This is like right after it happened, they stand right in front of them. I, this is Peter, who just a short little while ago says, I don't know the man. I have no idea what you're talking about. He's terrified. And now he says, that happened. What's the easiest way to stop that? Produce a body, man. Just roll out anybody. It would have been decayed enough that you really couldn't recognize. Just roll out a body and say, no, he's not alive. Here's his body right here. If you're willing to bribe people, roll out a body. Nobody's going to call you on it if it's actually true that he's dead. If it's a fake. Why don't they do that? Because they know there are hundreds of people in town who have seen Jesus alive, and they are radically changed people. All these same people, all these same authorities do is tell the preachers to shut up, and they keep whispering the lie. His disciples stole the body. There's no evidence. Psychologically, it makes no sense, but that's what we're going to tell you. Believe it, believe it, believe it, believe it. That didn't happen. And we need to look at this and consider it and, and weigh the evidence and, and come to some conclusions about this. Don't let it wash over you and, and don't turn away from it. I ask you for your own good. Keep focused on this and in your heart, speak to God. I want to know what's true, Lord. I want to know what's true. I want to live in, in line with what's true, actually. Whatever that may be. So what does this news event mean? What happened? What's it about? What's it for? Tell me. Come to the Lord like that. Don't, don't come to me like that. Go, go to God like that and, and go, go like, like this before God, open-handed, open-hearted. Whatever's the truth, Lord, that's what I want. I don't want what's convenient. I don't want what I've always believed. I don't want what my parents have taught me. I want what's true. What is it? You come, come to God like that, open-handed and humble, and he'll point you back to this empty tomb and he'll tell you what it means. What it means is that Jesus has been given universal and total authority, dominion. He now reigns over everything and everyone, and that means everything. He is the one with whom we must deal. He holds the keys to life and the key to eternal life. You see, while he hangs dying on the cross and while he lies dead in the tomb, he appears to be a failed deliverer, a false messiah, a liar. Everything that we read about in, in the scriptures, if, if the story stopped there, everything we would read about would be cast under a gigantic liar label. 
He lived claiming to be God. Claiming to be the I am of the Old Testament, Yahweh, the the creator God in the flesh. And he healed on the Sabbath as if it was his right. And he said all the scriptures and all the prophets were talking about him as as if the Bible was written for him and about him. And he claimed to be the Lamb of God who takes away sin in his death. And he claimed to be the only way into fellowship with God. And he boldly commanded people, not just here's some good advice, he boldly commanded people to hope in and trust in himself. All the while saying that he was obeying God and that God approved of it all. But there he hangs under the curse of God on the cross. Ha, says his enemies. There he is dead. Ha. Called the bluff. But then the resurrection happens and renders a different verdict. See, it seems there's a whole lot of claim that gets answered. But actually it gets re-answered and reaffirmed as God puts a stamp of approval on Jesus, certifying, yep, that's the guy. Yep, that's the Messiah. Yep, that's me in the flesh, God in flesh. Yep, that's the only way to be saved. Uh Uh-huh, you must follow and obey him. Yes, indeed, he is the lamb who forgives. His blood alone saves. It wasn't a bluff. He's raised from the grave and raised to the right hand of the authority and power. As Jesus says in verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's where Jesus is now, in the place of total, absolute authority. He's the crucified king, the one on whom all of our allegiance and all of our obedience and all of our hope can and must be fixed. Exalted from the grave up to on high. Now maybe up to this point, maybe up to this point, up to this point in your life perhaps, you've known of these things but maybe overlooked them a little bit or not thought very hard about it. And not thought very hard about what it means that Jesus is in authority, that Jesus was raised from the grave. Maybe even been dismissive of it, maybe even opposed it. Well, right now, never mind what happened up to this point, never mind where you have been, never mind how you have considered him before, right now, the remarkable thing is that you might think that somebody who has gone through this, made low, lifted up high, would now be lifted up high, haughty. Kind of a sort of posture. In fact, no. Right now, the remarkable thing is that he holds out hands of mercy. He holds out to people, to all of us, no matter where you've been in the past. He holds out to all of us an offer of forgiveness, an offer of mercy, and an offer of life if you will turn to him. But here's what you have to face. The reason he's offering forgiveness, 
The reason he's offering mercy is because you, like me, like all people, you have sin that needs to be forgiven. That's why he offers forgiveness. You have a need before the king. That's why he offers mercy. I don't say this to be like in some way like hard-nosed or something or arrogant by no means. This is just the truth. The whole reason behind Jesus coming and going to the cross in the first place was that we people, me and you, have throughout our lives, every day of all of our lives, have lived contrary to him, have resisted his authority in a thousand different ways, have said, "My, my way is good, I know what I'm doing. I'll run my life. Have, have set aside his authority. That's sin and that must be faced. And God says, I face that in judgment. Or I offer a hand of forgiveness and mercy to the one who then says, I see that, I hear it, and turns to him. A Bible word for that is repent turns to him from going my own way, turns to him from my sin in surrendered and humble faith. Jesus takes that sin and says, I forgive that. How I forgive it is I put it on my cross where I pay for it. I have mercy on that person. How I have mercy on you is that I have justice on myself. That's what I died for. You come to him in simple, humble faith and you ask him to take your sin and forgive you and he will. He will place it on his cross and blot it out from you and forgive you. And it doesn't end there. Forgive you and then you stand in the place forgiven launching into a new life. The old you with Jesus dies and the new you then with Jesus forgiven, raised to live new. This is the privilege. This is the privilege of the Christian life. Whether you become one right now or you've been one for 50 years, the privilege of the Christian life is not only that you become forgiven of your sin, that you get forgiven. We should think of sin as as the barrier that holds us back from life with God. It is is the barrier, it is the offense that puts us on the wrong side of God's judgment. And when the sin is dealt with, we don't just stay there forgiven, we cross over onto the right side of God's judgment into his forgiveness and into life with him. And from that moment on, you live new. This is the privilege that probably most of us here in this room, I don't know who all is listening online, but most of you in this room have, have come to the spot of say, where you can say, I'm a privileged person. I'm a recipient of something marvelous. You have been raised. You trusted Christ. You're forgiven. You're an object of mercy. You've been raised to walk now in newness of life. This is the theme of Paul in the heart of Romans, that something happened at the cross that then was answered at the resurrection that then brought you to new life to be different. That's awesome. You have been raised to walk with 
the omnipotent one. You have been raised to walk with the one who has dominion, raised to walk with as a friend. I was reading this morning about how God called, he spoke three different parallel phrases to Jacob, my servant, to Israel, my called one, to Abraham, my friend. He's building to come to the last point. My friend, you, Christian, are God's friend. Awesome. Awesome. See, we leave the courtroom then. We leave leave sin and judgment and and forgiveness and justification. We leave leave the courtroom and, and move into relationship where God calls you friend and says, I raise you to walk with me as friend in newness of life with a power at work in you to make you different, a power at work in you to communicate to you me. Awesome. Christian. The beauty of Easter is is not flowers and and sunrises. The beauty of Easter is, is friendship and difference. Friendship with God and a different life. Driven by a power that's not yours. That's Him at work in you. A a power to walk as a real live human being. Which sometimes we, with tragic misrepresentation, talk about it like, the, the life that I'm supposed to live, the way that it would be right and appropriate to walk with God and, and obedient to him. Oh my goodness, no. A real life human being like you were made. Which is also right and appropriate, yes. But it's life. Would you see that? When he made you new and raised you with, and put a power in you to make you different, what he did was he put a power in you to be Right? To be whole, to be full, to be beautiful and glorious, which is to be holy and righteous and just indeed, but it's to be human. If you wonder about this, just turn around and read the newspaper and see the wreckage. That's what it's like. Read the newspaper and see the wreckage. That's what it's like, that's what it's like to walk not in newness of life. I'm sure there's good stuff in the newspaper, I'm sure, but... You know what I'm saying? The world is a wreck, man. The world is a wreck. And God put something in you as a Christian to empower you to walk with him as friend different. Increasingly so, increasingly so, until finally completely so. That is awesome. You're made a new creation in Christ. And that happened because Jesus rose from the dead. If he did not, that did not happen. You're still in your sin, still the old you, doomed. But he did rise. And that's glorious good news. And that impacts us and everybody in all the world because what it says to everybody in all the world is come and find life. It's, it's provided, it's available in one place, but the door's open. Come. 
And as I move to the second point, which is shorter, the doors open, come. Part of the newness in life that we're given right now is to help people find the door. That gets us to the second point, which is shorter. The resurrection of Jesus is news meant for all the earth. The resurrection of Jesus is news meant for all the earth. We usually, I think, we're, we, I think we're accustomed to thinking about and talking about the resurrection with regards to what it says here about Jesus and his mission and his death and how it, it ratifies in front of us that, that he is who he said he was. We talk about that. And then we're accustomed to talking about how it affects us personally, how it, it calls us to to repentance, it, it offers to us life. It, we lean into Paul's language in Romans about walking in newness of life, kind of like I was just doing. We're, we're kind of accustomed to talking about the resurrection like that. But it's worth noting, that's not what Matthew does. That's not Matthew. I went to Romans, talked to Paul, etc., other places in the Bible. Something different happens in Matthew which is the, the account before us this morning. Matthew has some other idea in his mind, which is inspired by, by God, as to what a natural follow-up on this resurrection would be, what a, a natural application of it, you might almost say, is. Let's see if we can see where he's going with this by noticing his clues. You remember Matthew 26, 32, I mentioned at the very beginning, Jesus' prediction on the Mount of Olives, after I am raised... I will go before you to Galilee. <clears throat> Here in verse 7 then of our passage, 28-7, the angel says to the women, go tell his disciples that he has risen, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. And then verse 10, Jesus now himself speaks, go and tell my brothers, my disciples, to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. These statements here in the account by the angel, by Jesus, while Jesus fully knows that actually he's going to go to Jerusalem immediately. He's going to see him there. He's going, he's going there right off. And, and the 11 and some others are, are currently there, waiting there in depressed fear. He's going to see them there first, but there's no mention of that here. Just go to Galilee. Jesus is going to go before you, and there you will meet him, and there you will see him. Why is that? It's interesting. Why is that? Not, we all are going to go back to Jerusalem and I'm going to walk into the Sanhedrin this afternoon and blow some people's minds. And then I'm going to go say hi to Pilate and freak him out. <laughs> that would be interesting. And that's not what he did. But he should, in a way. Jerusalem is, is the city. Jerusalem's like the center. It's... It is the place of the king. It is the place of God's temple. It's the place where Messiah should come, the place where he should set up his reign. And it should extend out from there, you might think. So 
Jesus does go back there, and he appeared to them in the upper room. We, we, we know that. It's, but it's not even mentioned here. Just say, I'm going to Galilee. Come find me. There you'll see me. And then verse 16, they did. The 11 are mentioned there. There are almost certainly more because this, this whole traveling band of people you remember included all the women who traveled with him and many other disciples, which is why I can say in the text, they believed but some doubted. Uh, many people here are seeing Jesus alive for the very first time and they're having the same sort of encounter that people had when they saw him for the first time. Really? Can this be? So some doubt, some are uncertain about this, but some worship him because they've seen him and they, they understand. There's, there's a large group mixed here. But the 11 are, em, are emphasized, the 11 disciples, because what's happening here at the end is for the church of which they are now the new leaders. They go to Galilee. Why Galilee? If it's just so that Jesus could ascend back to heaven, he could have done that anywhere, right? There's another reason. Do you remember where the Gospel of Matthew begins? You can look this up later, and it might be worth looking it up later, but, but roughly speaking, chapters 1 and 2, Jesus' birth and, and young childhood. Chapter 3, his baptism. Chapter 4, then, he defeats evil in the wilderness. And then chapter 4, verse 12, goes to Galilee to begin his ministry. The backwater, land of humble means, but more importantly, as Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah in verse 15, Galilee of the Gentiles, the region of darkness, the shadow of death, on Galilee of the Gentiles a great light has dawned. And then in chapter 4, he first called his disciples fishers of men by the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And he began to preach in Galilee, and so he became famous in Syria, which is outside of Israel. And he became famous in the Decapolis, which is Greek for the ten cities, which tells you something about their population. As well as in Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the river, almost as if it's Jerusalem and Judea and the ends of the earth. It's all in chapter 4. He called them back to Galilee to remind them of something, to tell them, okay, I'm raised. I have dominion. And I'm with you in every moment of every day, every single thing that is ever going to happen to you. I am with you and I am in charge. And so then go and make disciples of the nations of the Gentiles. And he told them that in Galilee of the Gentiles to kind of model it for them. Don't stay in Jerusalem. Go. Don't stay home. Don't stay where, where it's contained and cozy and comfortable. Go. I'm going to Galilee. You'll see me there. Come follow me. Like he first said to them in Galilee. I'll make you fishers of men. 
Still, I will, like he first said to them in Galilee. Go and make disciples, which is the emphasis in the sentence. Not, not, just, not just simple followers, not just converts, but disciples. Those who obey everything Jesus commanded them. Those who identify with the one name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. This, this is the triune God, clearly in the Bible. God is one and God is three. One name, Father, Son, and Spirit. And a disciple is one who believes that and follows, identifies himself or herself with that and obeys everything Jesus says, including this. Go and make disciples. So naturally, a lot more could be said about this paragraph, but my point here this Easter morning is to make clear that this final paragraph of the Gospel of Matthew is the appropriate follow-up to the resurrection paragraph in the Gospel of Matthew. One leads to the other. One naturally flows and, and moves. If you get this, then you say, oh, I go to Galilee with Jesus. That's where he is. So this is a, a tremendous, life-changing message. It is news of infinite import for us and for others through us. And we're supposed to understand that and act upon it. There is, in fact, good news. There's a gospel. Jesus was crucified for sin and raised so that people can be forgiven. Trust him. There's a gospel, and that leads to life change for us, friendship with God for us. Gospel-centered growth, then, is real. Embrace it and enjoy it. You can be different and you can grow. And then we come together as a church, and gospel-centered living together as a people is real. Embrace it and enjoy it. And also, gospel-centered mission is equally real, equally to be embraced and enjoyed. Easter ends with people going to the nations. The church going to follow Jesus out into the world so that people can know about him and find life in him. Is this a part of your application of the resurrection? Mission. Recently, I had the opportunity to talk with someone in a rather lengthy and rather detailed way as we discussed the message of the gospel. And it was a little bit complicated. And it took a little bit of work. And it was not exactly at maybe what you might call like the most convenient moment. So it took a little bit of sacrifice. And it took a lot of, took a lot of wisdom and a, a bunch of prayer before and during and after. But here's the thing. It was also fun. Do you know what I mean by that? It was fun. After it, you know, two hours later, I would have said, I will run that back and do that again right now. That was fun. 
Not because this person became a Christian. I don't know what happened from it. Why was it fun? I think, you check this, but I think it's because in that following of Jesus into his mission to seek and save the lost in all the earth, I am in a different way, in a, in a, in a, a slightly nuanced way, walking in newness of life. Walking in a new and different way that's not normal. But instead, so as I'm walking in this newness of life, what I think I find and what we all would find is that there's a type of experience of the friendship and a type of experience of the power of Jesus that you only find when you're on mission with Jesus. A little bit like you can, you can play with the paraphernalia of many jobs, but it only the equipment, the training only like makes sense when you're using it for what it's for. You can engage with Jesus and, and walk with him and know him indeed and sweetly and beautifully, but, but it makes most sense and feels most empowered and most fun, I think I want to say, engaging with him in his mission. Is that a part of your application of his resurrection? It should be. And you'd enjoy it. So let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.